0: into the gate. I'm your co-host, Jeremiah Jenny, broadcasting from Beijing. And with me, as always, my co-host, David Moser. Hey, David. Welcome back to China.
1: Thanks a lot. <laughs> it feels so great to be back, I have to tell you. Uh, quite an ordeal to get here. I'm in Shanghai right now, uh, quarantining for two weeks, just for the record. And uh, then I get back to Beijing and have to kind of stay at home for another week. So I might as well as come by boat. It might be it might have been quicker than uh, going through all this, but um, anyway, I'm glad to be back in a country where there was there is an average of 16 or so COVID cases a day, and out of a country where it's something like 16,000 cases a day. So I'm really happy to be here, closer and getting closer to you every day, Jeremiah.
0: Well, we're in the same time zone, so that's definitely a step in the right direction. Right. So, David. This month is the anniversary of the burning and sacking and looting of the Old Summer Palace, what's called the Old Summer Palace, uh Yuan, outside of Beijing, at the conclusion of the Second Opium War, sometimes called the Arrow War. And uh, David, have you, ever, have you been out to the Old Summer Palace, the park out there, in your travels around Beijing?
1: Oh, sure, of course. Uh, I was at Beida, of course, in the 80s, and uh, that was a place that... Uh, my buddies and I would bicycle out to, to have picnics or just, you know, outings. And also, I also remember during the nineties when we would go out there, when you you remember there was an artist colony that sort of sprang up there. I was there to see that uh, for the few years that it was there, I think just shortly before they ended up tearing it down. So yeah. I Mingyuan, I've been there many times. Uh, Yeah.
0: Weren't many of those artists in the colony there when they tore down the artist colony, weren't they, also a lot of them went over to what became now 798 and that that's area right. as well.
1: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, a lot of those artists had no place else to stay. It turns out that that 798 was this abandoned factory that at the time was not being used. It was just a, a completely ruined sort of a, you know, uh empty space and yeah, that was where those artists moved and
0: kind of from one set of ruins to another in a way. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I, I was a. Uh, it's been. It's one of my favorite spots in in the city. Um, first of all, there's just so much history there. It's a tragic history, but you know, it's a the space today is kind of a haunting reminder of this period of colonialism, imperialism in China, and also of a time when you know you had these two civilizations that were clashing together, and the results were often you know quite disastrous for for China. You know, it, today, of course, as we'll talk about later. This era known as the century of humiliation is is something that is part of the patriotic education curriculum in the schools. It's part of the media and cultural zeitgeist. And of course, it's, a, it's important to remember this era because there is no way to parse the idea that imperialism and colonialism in all its forms truly, truly sucks. But also, it's important to remember that this idea of a century of humiliation is key to a legitimizing narrative today of the Chinese rejuvenation and the, the Chinese dream and the great rejuvenation under Xi Jinping.
1: So, Jeremiah, maybe we should uh, first uh, lay a little bit of background. I'm sure most people know the basics of the Yuan but what was its importance? Uh, it was first started in, uh, under the reign of the em- Emperor Kangxi in the early 1700s. And uh, we'll talk about why it became the target of the, of the foreigners' wrath and why they burned and looted it. But uh, tell us a little bit about how, you know, why the, the palace, by the Summer Palace, its importance uh, and maybe uh, the scale and scope of, of the thing. It's, a, it's an incredible architectural and, you know, artistic wonder. Europeans who came to visit, you know, said that it was nothing like it in Europe. It was, it was the eighth wonder of the world.
0: Right well as you mentioned the the original idea of these gardens one of the things about this place too is it gets called the old summer palace in english and that leads a lot of people who arrive there for, especially international visitors to try to look for a palace which does which never really existed it wasn't really a palace and it wasn't even used just in the summer. It was, in fact, gardens. That's really what it was. And by gardens, we mean an incredibly, as you said, an incredible layout of villas, landscapes, temples, uh, buildings, structures, waterways, just a city unto itself. In its heyday, just the gardens that we think of as the old summer palace, which includes Ming Yuan and two other gardens that were attached to it, was roughly... I don't know, about five times the size of the Forbidden City, and about eight times the size of Vatican City. And that's not even including all the satellite gardens that were around it, ones that we think of today as the so-called New Summer Palace, you know, some of the gardens that became the campuses of like, you know, parts of the campuses of things like Peking University and Tsinghua University. It was an amazing complex. And as you mentioned, the construction of it began early in the 18th century under the Kangxi Emperor and one of the things about the Kangxi Emperor as a Manchu He found the Forbidden City to be somewhat Claustrophobic and so the idea was to create a set of gardens a space even a residence that could take advantage of some of of What passed for nature in the area around Beijing in this case up in the northwestern part of the city up northwest of the city walls up by the western hills and the emperor begins by expanding a set of gardens that's out there, kind of setting this place up. But every descendant of the Kangxi emperor afterwards would just add on to it and add on to it. And eventually by the you know the middle of the 19th century it is this enormous complex, a city unto itself. And when we say garden 2 or summer palace, the, the best way I think of it is, it's a little bit like an amusement park just for a single family. You know, if, if you could imagine like, if you were to give if, if you were to give me or give you all the money in the world and a lot of time and access to an endless supply of cheap non-union labor, and we could build an amusement park just for us. You know, every movie or book we've ever read or seen, every place we've ever wanted to visit, every place we visited and want to recreate in the backyard, that's what this was. I mean it was an imperial Disneyland. I have to think the only thing that we have in like Western pop culture that would compare to this would be like Michael Jackson's Neverland Ranch, but much bigger. That's a that's a good analogy,
1: yeah. Uh, also, you're right, uh, you know, from what we know about life there, uh, it was sort of a Disneyland and it, it, it sort of speaks to the sort of isolated existence of the imperial family. Um, and one thing that I've always found interesting is that uh, the Yong- the Yongzheng Emperor, and maybe the succeeding emperors as well, you know, had these sort of living tableau where he and the family could, uh, the emperor and the family could observe and in- interact with the ordinary people in everyday life, but, you know, as a sort of ersatz version of it, uh, this sort of hunger for being able to actually see and live in the outside world. You know, a lot of, in the Forbidden City, a lot of the emperors were... were that place is so claustrophobic that many were driven mad but you know one of the one of these uh, tableau was a, a, a sort of a scene that involved court eunuchs pretending to be rural farmers on an island and the emperor could just sit uh you know on the terrace and watch them working it's you know all completely an ash show an act and sort of imagine you know watching these rural farmers you know working uh on their crops and the other was the other one that um, is even more amazing is this sort of, uh, they called it mime idea, where the, the, the emperor and his royal family could walk along this fake Disneyland type street where all kinds of, the eunuchs uh, were playing all sorts of roles. Uh, there were fake weddings, the fake courts and fake police and all the commerce of a normal Chinese street, the snacks, the different cuisines, the beggars, street performers. All, all make-believe, all eunuchs dressed up, play-acting. And the eunuchs would sometimes even pretend to get in fights so that the fake police could come and arrest them. And, uh, you know, all just completely for, for in service of a, of a very small group, <laughs> the, the royal family. So, uh, and also the amounts of food that they ate, the banquets, thousands and thousands of people involved in, in, in the daily preparation of meals. Um, I, there's there's some, some great information in a book that I've just been reading about just, just, the, just the food preparation and the fact that there were thousand, more than a thousand uh, cooks of various kinds, including one person whose only job was to stand and be in charge of the salt shaker. I mean, <laughs> we're talking about an extraordinary outlay of, of, of resources and monetary resources just for this, group, this uh, small group of, of royalty.
0: It's, it's quite amazing. No, I mean it, it was an, an incredible space, and I think one of the things about it too is this was in in some ways, and it varied from emperor to emperor, but for many of the the emperors from the early 18th century down to you know the middle of the 19th century when the the gardens were destroyed, you know we call it summer, but a summer palace, but they were resident there. Eight nine months of the year, uh, you know, really was the the Forbidden City back in the back in the capital inside the capital's walls was in some ways the office. You know, they they most of the time the emperors were living out in these gardens, and that's why they you know all of the a lot of their attention. In some ways, this was the place that the emperors the Qing they loved this place the most because also it was some place that they had created. They inherited the Forbidden City from the fallen Ming Dynasty. This the the gardens out in the you know, the Yuan Ming Yuan and the other gardens out there, this was kind of a a, a space for them. Um, you mentioned the living tableau. I guess if we're gonna do stories from the old days, one of my favorite stories about the Yuan Ming Yuan is many people will know there's a section, a very small section of these gardens where the emperor had built or had ordered constructed A set of palaces that were designed in the Western style, and there's a it's a it's not the whole palace. It's just a very small section, kind of tucked up in the northern corner, of the uh, Old Summer Palace. And you know the story is that uh, the Emperor Qianlong in the 18th century um, asked one of his court advisors, who was an Italian Jesuit named Giuseppe Castiglione, to uh, to design these gardens. And I can imagine that conversation. You know, it's like you know, remember that this is a place. This is a, a kind of amusement park where the emperor has constructed, you know, replicas of different parts of his empire and you know different scenes from you know mythology and from some of the literature. So of course he's always curious about adding on new and whimsical um, elements to his gardens. And you know, he's talk- I can imagine the conversation one day between. Uh, the Qianlong Emperor and 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 Giuseppe Castiglione, you know, the Emperor is like, hey, so uh, Giuseppe, how you doing? Um, you know, I've been hearing you talk about how you Europeans have palaces, and I can't believe that because, of course, you're all hairy monkey people. But maybe you could draw a picture of one of these palaces for me. And Castiglione sketches out a you know a series of palaces that he remembered from his boyhood in Europe. And the Emperor was like, hey, that is awesome. Now, I know that you're just a painter and an artist, but why don't you just you know, build me that? And uh, of course, this won't be the last time that a foreign employee of a Chinese state-owned agency is asked to do something wildly outside their job description. <laughs> and so Castiglione gets to, you know, with a couple other Jesuits and Chinese architects, constructs these you know, Western-style palaces, and the ruins of, the, of these palaces are still there. They're the primary tourist attraction right now. In the Be, remains of the old because those were the
1: ones that were made of stone mostly. A lot of the other buildings that's were, right. Would, yeah. That's
0: right. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of parts of one part of these Western style palaces, the one part that's actually been uh, rebuilt in in a, in a way so it looks kind of as it did prior to this destruction, is the Migong or the the maze. And there's a kind of a European style garden maze with a gazebo in the middle. And one of my favorite stories is that apparently the Qianlong Emperor when he was bored or on certain special occasions like the New Year's Festival, would race his concubines through the maze. Like he would (laughs) give them all little umbrellas, kind of like, you know, jockeys with different colors, and he would sit in the gazebo in the middle of this maze as the concubines kind of raced to him. I guess he was the referee slash prize in all of this. So I guess, again, this is the, the, these gardens, as, as you were saying, living tableau, banquets, this is the kind of place that emperors could do the sort of things when people with absolute power get, you know, bored.
1: So, uh, Jeremiah, what we need probably, or what our listeners need, is a kind of an introduction to the events and the dynamics uh, of, the, of the foreigners there and the, and the, the emperor and, and China uh, and the, the events that led up to the conflict which resulted in the looting and burning of, of the palace
0: compound. Well, the, the destruction of the Old Summer Palace, it, it occurs at the end of something called the Second Opium War or the Arrow War, uh, which began in 1856. Then the first opium war, or following the first opium war, uh, which concluded in 1842 with the signing first of the Treaty of Nanjing between the Qing Empire and Britain. And then there were subsequent treaties with the United States, with France, with the Kingdom of Sweden and Norway, and in these treaties, the foreign powers received, you know, fairly significant concessions in terms of trade, in terms of the ports where they could, um, where they could live, where they could carry out their business. You know, there was all of these privileges that were given to foreigners to reside. It exempted some of these treaties. The reading of these treaties exempted foreigners from being arrested or tried in a chinese court for any crimes they would commit in china and while these were pretty enormous concessions many of the foreign powers almost immediately after they signed the treaties even as the ink was drying on the paper kept thinking like wow we could have gotten so much more but it would have to wait a bit until the court that would be willing to renegotiate or another crisis would precipitate an opportunity would create an opportunity to renegotiate the treaties and that came in 1856, and it, like a lot of wars in the 19th century, it started for dumb reasons dearly. In this particular case, uh, down in the port of Guangzhou in, in Canton, uh, there was a dispute over a ship that had been seized by the uh Qing customs authorities or the Qing authorities it was a ship that was flying a british flag but had a chinese crew and it had a registration in british controlled hong kong but the registration had lapsed and the whole thing was pretty shady because the customs authorities or the Qing authorities were pretty sure it was a smuggling ship but it had been flying the british flag and when they seized the ship and seized the crew the consul the british consul in uh, in guangzhou harry parks who is a he becomes well known in Chinese history for his very, depending upon your perspective, uh, determined stance or belligerent stance towards China. Harry Parks demands that the governor general of Guangzhou release this ship, release the crew. And when the governor general isn't very forthcoming about this, Parks decides to then open fire on Guangzhou. Um, and this kind of precipitates a crisis in Guangzhou and they send word back to London, and when Parliament hears about this, they're like, they, they can't really even believe what they're reading, uh, you know, they can't believe that a consul, you know, so many thousands of miles away, is trying to start a war with the Qing Empire, There's many people in parliament who aren't totally wild about the whole uh, military adventurism on the China coast. You know, in the first opium war, that was a hard sell for people who weren't totally convinced that, you know, making Queen Victoria the world's largest narco-baron was something that was worth, you know, going to war over. In this particular case, it was a difficult decision for the British government, but the opium merchants who had a very lot of influence in parliament, trade interests had a lot of influence in parliament, and of course there were just gung-ho supporters of empire in parliament. And after um, some political uh, instability, the government fell, they had to cede a new parliament, uh, approval was given for a new adventure uh, on the China coast. when The British sent troops and, uh, and ships to the China coast to blockade ports and to force China to you know come to the negotiating table. And they were joined in this by their good friends, the French, who while they didn't have significant trade interests in China, had kind of set themselves up as the protectors of Christianity, particularly Catholicism, uh, in the Chinese Empire, in the Qing Empire. And they were going to war to get redress for the murder of a missionary who had died uh, in South China a couple of years, uh, you know, a couple of years prior to this and also because they basically wanted to keep an eye on the British. And so in 1850, between 1856 and 1858, you have this uh, campaign in which British ships, many of them, you know, are these kind of newer steam driven ships so that can go up and down rivers, they can sail right up against Chinese cities or they can tow, um, you know, large ship, gun gunboats. Right off the coast of Chinese shit cities. From which we get the term gunboat diplomacy. Right. I mean, this is the closest thing we have would be like, you know, you remember that movie back in the 90s, like Independence Day? And like, the, you know, the, the, the spaceships like hover over Chicago, and then one of the aliens presses a button, and like, whoops, no more Chicago. That's what this was. You'd take these gunboats, you'd put them off the coast, you'd blockade a port, put them off the coast of a walled city, and you'd say, open up, or we just destroy the whole city with our gunboats. And after two years of this, you know, especially once these gunboats and these troops start reaching north China, you know, outside the city of Tianjin, which is only, you know, 100 miles or so away from Beijing, the court's like, all right, you know, no mas, Let's negotiate a treaty. And so there's a negotiation in Tianjin. A new treaty is signed, the Treaty of Tianjin in 1858. Uh, The foreign powers get even more concessions, and one of the biggest ones they get for the first time and this is something that the foreign powers had wanted for the better part of a century, is the right to establish you know, diplomatic residence, diplomatic representation residing inside the capital uh, in Beijing, uh, new ports are opened up. You know, the treaty is signed in 1858, but when the negotiators show it to the emperor, he kind of votes no. And the, the negotiators aren't really sure how to finesse this, and it becomes a major problem about a year later in 1859, the British and French, along with the Americans and uh, the Russians and others, show up with their, you know, diplomatic representatives to get to Beijing. You have to go through the mouth of something called the uh, the North River. You know, it's the river that kind of goes from the sea to Tianjin, connects to the canals that goes to Beijing. The Qing decided to make it. Dif- the Qing court decided to make it difficult for the foreign powers. They suggested that the emperor wasn't happy, and so they weren't allowed to take their boats along the river or the canal, but they could certainly go overland to Beijing. And for some of the ministers, like the Russians and the Americans, they were kind of okay with this, um, or willing to at least compromise, but the British and French representatives wanted to go by the route that they had planned on. When they get to this river... They see that the river is blocked with iron chains and all these obstacles. And there's a couple of forts overlooking the river. They're called the Dagu forts. And when they try to clear the river of these obstacles, the forts open fire on the on the convoy of ships that's trying to get into the river with the diplomats. This convoy is under fire from these forts. They try to land marines and engineers to clear the river to, to, so they can move out and retreat, and they can't do that. Um, and at the end of the day, a couple hundred... Of the British and French um, soldiers and sailors are dead, they have to beat a retreat out of the river, and as you can imagine, the court's like, awesome, like high fives all around. We'll never have to worry about those, you know, foreign powers ever again. But of course, that's not what happened. And a year later, and this is kind of brings us to the the burning of the the Summer Palace in 1860. You have this new Armada that returns to the North China coast. You've got you know something like 16,000 troops. They're bringing with them all these new toys, like Armstrong guns, these you know fairly uh, advanced artillery pieces and guns that were designed to fight land wars in Asia against numerically superior opponents. And this time in 1860, this is a year after they were forced to retreat um, from the river in that debacle in 1859. There, the British and French troops kind of sweep. Um, into, the, into North China. They destroy the Dagu Forts. They occupy Tianjin. And they rout, you know, the, the military of the Qing Empire that tries to stop them. And eventually they push right up against the walls of Beijing. And this is where things then get very, very messy.
1: Right, so you have the Xianfeng Emperor is in charge. And he sees that this situation is not going to turn out well. And he actually flees the capital
0: at that point. He sees what's happening, and uh, it, it's it's kind of a you know he, he goes to his little brother who's uh, who's known in history as Prince Gong, and he's like, hey bro, how you doing? Um, going on vacation. Uh, I filled out my I filled out the paperwork for my leave of absence. Um, while I'm gone, can you just handle a few things for me, like uh, feed the fish at the UN Mingyuan and uh, new dumpling recipe in the kitchen. Not wild about it. Can you execute the chef? And uh, oh, massive army of hairy barbarians about to sack our city! Uh, see what you can do about that. So yeah, the emperor the emperor completely like flakes and and leaves this capital. And this is this, this kind of also causes a bit of a crisis because now no one's totally in charge. And when the British and French forces try to negotiate some kind of truce or ceasefire or at least a kind of relatively peaceful occupation of beijing they encounter many members of the qing military who are not totally on board with the idea of any kind of peaceful despite the fact they've 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 they're been they're back on their heels they don't just want to open up the gates and when a group of these a group of diplomats who are accompanied by a french priest there's a british journalist as well um there's a guard as well as a couple of so many soldiers many of them are um sikhs and they go to meet with their Qing counterparts, and when they kind of reach the the place of Parley, there's a dispute between none other than Harry Parks, this council who way back in 1856 had started this whole mess and was probably, from the Chinese side, one of the most hated men in China. I mean, Peter Navarro looks like, you know, a you know a jungle haoyou compared to Harry Parks back in the uh, 1850s, and so... And as it, what ends up happening is that the, one of the commanders gives the order to round up the, the entire negotiating party from the foreign side and throws them in a dungeon inside the uh, board of punishments. And, you know, the, the, treatment, you know, the treatment of these guys is, is, is quite brutal. One of the people who gets locked up is, is a guy named Henry Locke, who was a secretary to the British commander, Lord Elgin. And if that name sounds familiar, yes, he is the son of the Elgin Marbles, Elgin. And Locke, is, Locke has this great, in, in his, his memoirs, Locke has this kind of, you know, this is this British stiff upper lip going strong. He says, had it not been for the starvation, the pain from the cramped position in which the chains and ropes retained the arms and legs, the heavy drag of the iron collar on the bones of the spine, the creeping vermin that infested every place, together with the occasional beatings and torture which the prisoners were time to time taken away for hours to endure, of course returning with bleeding legs and bodies so weak they were scarcely able to crawl, there really was no great hardship to be endured. And he was one of the lucky ones. Um, you know, that once they capture these guys, the court doesn't know what to do with them, and many of these men who were captured end up dying in some pretty horrible ways uh, what a lot of what happens is not so much the the torture itself but they have all these injuries from the torture and from the beatings and from the battle and the they're they're tied with these wet ropes that when they dry constrict which splits the skin and then all of these guys get, it gets infected in these dungeons and most of these guys die of sepsis um Locke and parks are two of the lucky ones they're the ones who will eventually survive this, but most of the men who were taken prisoner were returned as corpses.
1: At this point, uh, there's a decision to be made, which is uh, what are we going to do about this? And they decided that uh, rather than uh, punish the ordinary people of, of Beijing or their surrounding area, they want to uh, find something that will hurt the the emperor and the imperial family the most. And that thing is that the yeah, I Mingyan, yeah, the Summer Palace.
0: Yeah, there's a there's an initial idea to try to burn down the Forbidden City. With a a civil war going on, the Taiping Rebellion and going on in central China, uh, there's there's some talk about this, but the feeling is if they burn down the Forbidden City, that will be such a blow to the dynasty, the dynasty might fall, and uh, that would that wouldn't work out because the British would be faced with trying to take over yet another continent-sized colony that hates them. Uh, then, yeah, so the decision gets made. If we can't burn down the Forbidden City, let's hit the emperor where they where – let's, let's go to what the emperor really loves, and that's these imperial gardens. And so British and French troops march northwest of Beijing. Uh, they take control of the gardens, and the first thing that happens is they just loot the place. I mean, everything that's not nailed down – you have these stories. The British – Soldiers have all these diaries about how their French counterparts are running around stealing everything. The French soldiers talk about how the British can't restrain themselves from stealing everything. But really, it's a free for all. You have guys running around wearing like eight robes, women's clothing, crowns on their head. You know, carrying like nine vases or bronzes and scrolls. And I mean, even today, David, you know, we get these stories of you know somebody in England, uh, their great, great. A great-grandmother has died, and the vase that she inherited from her grandmother turns out to be a Ming Dynasty vase that was looted from the Old Summer Palace. It's worth millions.
1: There's, a, there's some famous, if I may, there's some famous uh, quotes that I usually show to my students um, that describe this, this process. Well, this is a famous one from Captain Charles Gordon, uh, later to be famous as the leader of the, the ever-victorious army against the Taiping rebels. But he wrote home to his uh, mother and sister um after after receiving orders to burn the palace and this is a famous excerpt from his diary or from the letter we we accordingly went out and after pillaging it burned the whole place destroying in a vandal-like manner the most valuable property which could not be replaced for 4 millions you can scarcely imagine the beauty and magnificence of the places we burnt it made one heart it made one's heart sore to burn them in fact these palaces were so large and we were so pressed for time we could not plunder them carefully Quantities of gold ornaments were burnt, considered as brass. It was wretchedly demoralizing work for an army. That, that quote kind of sums up the mixed feelings of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the soldiers whose job it was to burn and loot this place. On the one hand, it was this, this sort of orgy of, of greed and, ex, and excitement. But at the same time, people f- could see that this was a, a horrific uh, cultural uh, crime being committed um, I, there's a, another slightly longer one I would like to read from from someone named uh, one of the French troops, Maurice Derrisson uh, f- and this is from an article, a classic article of uh, by Jeremy Barmay, where he documents these things. The things is called the the Garden of Perfect Brightness, I think, is the name of it. But this this is an amazing first person uh, eyewitness account here, just an excerpt from it. So this is uh, Derrisson's Account. He says, I was only an onlooker, a disinterested but curious onlooker, positively reveling in this strange and unforgettable spectacle, in this swarm of men of every color, every sort, the scrum of all the races of the world, as they flung themselves on the spoil, shouting hurrahs in every language on earth, hurrying, pushing, tumbling over one another, picking themselves up, cursing and swearing, and returning laden with loot. It was like an anthill disturbed by the toe of a boot when the black swarms have been roused up and hurry off in all directions, one with grub, one, one with a tiny egg, another with a seed in its jaws. There were soldiers with, with their heads in the, rack, in the red lacquer boxes from the Empress's chamber. Others were wreathed in masses of brocade and silk, Others stuffed rubies, sapphires, pearls, and bits of rock crystal into their pockets, shirts, and caps, and hung their necks with pearl necklaces. Others hugged clocks and clock cases. Engineers had brought their axes to smash up the furniture and get the precious stones inlaid in it. One man was savagely hacking at a Louis XV the, the clock in the form of a cupid. He took the crystal figures on the face for diamonds. Every now and then the cry of fire rang out. Dropping whatever they had hold of, they all ran to put out the flames, which were by that time licking the sumptuous walls padded with the, with the silks and damask and furs. It was like a scene from an opium dream.
0: Wow, so, that's, that's some vivid imagery there.
1: Yeah, so you get some sense of the absolute surrealistic chaos of, of, this, of this event
0: once the looting was over and, and you're right the looting was just in, in, incredible chaos i mean it, it's, at one point they even steal like the emperor's ke- the emperor's kennel you know they they steal all these puppies and ship them back to england for the queen victoria she actually gets one of the puppies and names it ludy
1: yeah, that's so ironic, <laughs> this dog. They actually name it looty.
0: Yeah, I think there's a reason this is called the century of humiliation. Once the looting was done, and I think this is what makes this such a horrific act of cultural vandalism, the, enge- the army engineers then went to work. And you know, the, I think a, the destruction of the Yuan Ming Yuan, you know, the, the systematic way that the soldiers went to each and every building that they could, looked at it as an engineering problem, destroyed it, and then moved on. Um, You know, it wasn't necessarily a case where they had thrown a match over the wall and walked away or this was a case where, you know, there was a battle and the church got in the middle and it was destroyed and that's terrible, but it was a mistake. This was a plan to level this place. And while there were some structures that, you know, may have survived a little bit, um, but by and large, this amazing area was destroyed down to the foundations and I think that's the when I think about this whenever destruction is done systematically with purpose and with intent I feel like that just adds a, a level a level of tragedy to it that is more than even when something is accidentally destroyed in an act of war or in in hostilities and you know when you look back at this period and you look back at this event, you know there. Yes, there was this incident with the 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 negotiators that kind of led to the destruction or the additional punishment that led to the destruction of the old summer palaces, and a lot of that is a lot of the Western literature, especially from that era, kind of focuses on this sort of you know justified retribution. Um, but it also uh, you know in any war, as you know, justified retribution can go both ways. I mean the whole act of this war itself was just another, it was an example of foreign aggression against the Qing Empire, and, you know, it, it's hard, in this kind of situation, it's hard for me to kind of think that despite the horrible way these prisoners were treated, it, it justified you know, destroying what if it had survived to this day, which granted given the 20th century in China isn't necessarily a sure thing, but if it had survived to this day would be one of the world's, you know, great, one of the world's great historic sites.
1: Yes, that it, it the Summer Palace would be the, the tourist place to go to, not necessarily the Great Wall or the Forbidden City. This would be the one, yeah. I just mentioned this, the fact that, that, that there was this continual... Continued looting and uh, sort of scavenging that went on, you know, well after 19, uh, 1860 and th- even through the Boxer Rebellion, there were still, you know, uh, people tearing things down. And I, by the way, I forgot to mention when I f- visited the Summer Palace recently um, last fall, uh, I was talking with one of the administrators there and I was in, as I was sitting in his office, a worker came in with a, a sort of a, an artifact that I didn't recognize at first, but it's a, it's it's something called a, a, a wadang, which is a piece of ceramic that they put on the tiles of the roofs that usually has inscriptions on it. It's kind of a, you know, it's a very kind of a beautiful little object, a round sort of disc. Brought it in to the administrator, whoever it was there, and said, uh, here we we found this. And he said, oh, okay, yeah, go go take a picture of it and go, you know, n- put it in a numerical marker on it and then put it in the files and, and we'll deal with it later. And I said, well, what's this? He said, "Oh, they were—you know—they're—they're they're, they're renovating. You know, they're putting in some lawn there or something. They—they did—they dug dug up this artifact that that was, you know, undiscovered." And I said, "That's amazing." And he said, "Oh, this happens every week, many times. Anytime they do anything, they uncover, they dredge up artifacts of various kinds. You know, not necessarily jewels and diamonds, but you know, artifacts that to this day you, they can find in the in the uh, summer palace compound. So well, this is incredible amounts of of." just sheer stuff there on the compound that had to be destroyed or looted. And there's still, to this day, they're finding new, new digging up different examples of that.
0: Incredible. I think it's interesting too that there's been calls periodically to kind of restore or rebuild the site. And it, it I find it fascinating that a lot, most of the time, those calls are rebuffed with the idea that, you know, it's, it's a much more powerful symbol as ruins than it would be as a sort of re- you know, rebuilt theme park. And it, it reminds us that, you know, this is, this is it continues to be, it's, it's labeled as a patriotic education base, but it's, it's a powerful symbol, a powerful reminder of this period of history. And, you know, the loot itself um, has become symbolic of an effort by China to repatriate a lot of the material culture that was taken out of China whether it was stolen, looted, bought, bought under sketchy circumstances, what have you, but this effort to reclaim you know, the, the, the lost uh, cultural heritage and many of these you know, art items that came out of the Old Summer Palace, in particular, uh, a set of 12 bronze fountain heads, the 12 zodiac animals that decorated a fountain in these western palaces have taken on a kind of outsized importance as uh, symbols of, of this effort. And uh, some of these bronze figure, f- bronze fountain fountainheads uh, have been uh, returned to China. Some of them are at the National Museum. Some are at the Pali Museum in Beijing. But several of them are still missing.
1: Yeah, I remember that there were two uh, bronze, two of these bronze animal heads. Uh, I think one was the rat and the, what was the other one? The rat and the the rabbit were plundered by the British and French during the 1860, and they were they turned up uh, in 2013 on sale at Christie's auction for 200 or 200, I mean, sorry, 20 or 24 million. I think one was 20, 24 million. Uh, and yes, the, the the Chinese government has made this an agenda of buying these things back. Uh, which they now have the money to do so and the wherewithal to do so, which which must be a very sickening kind of thing to do, to actually pay money to get these things back repatriated. Uh, I would also mention um, kind of interesting that uh, Jim Hevy a, 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 which I'm sure you know, the, the historian at the University of Chicago, has done a lot of work on. Done, yeah, he's done a lot of work on this. And one of the things he told me was that uh, they have now uh, since the advent of you know computer. Uh, technology and archives they've they've digitized the entire london times uh, as far back as from the 1800s you can now online or at least on the files search for various auctions held in the early part of the century in london and elsewhere and infer from some of the labels you know if you if you search for auctions during these in these paper records you can find items for sale like china late Qing summer palace or or you know uh, late Qing beijing artifact and get a, a sense that this is one of these items that was looted from the summer palace and then they're able to use that uh, information to trace its path through the you know private owners in the auctions on the auction blocks and sort of figure out where these these place these artifacts are today because you know many museums are sort of ashamed to have them there they don't want to lose them but they're ashamed to to be you know, upfront about the source, and so they just say something like you know a Beijing artifact from 1860. But yeah, it's it's a it's a huge undertaking now to try to get these some of some of these things back, and also a little dirty secret: a lot of the loot was 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 taken by local people, by Beijingers, by Chinese people, took them home, and you could even still find in the hutongs occasionally, or used to anyway, be able to find a few you know statues or little uh, doorpost animals or something that had been looted and they were just the family was keeping them. So yeah, it's, it's it's a huge issue and it has to do with you know this redress of this national humiliation.
0: Not to take anything away from the tragedy of the destruction, but when you go to, when we go to the Old Summer Palace. They sometimes show a video that shows uh, heroic, you know, farmers defending the palace to the last man against the British and French, uh, you know, invaders. It's it's an interesting spin on what happened because there was a lot of fighting between British and French troops and local, you know, local farmers, local pe- people who were kind of in the area around uh, the Summer Palace, the Old Summer Palace, when it was being uh, looted. But what it turned—it seems to be more like once the gates were open, the people who lived around the palace, and of course have never been ever been allowed inside, once they saw things were being taken, they wanted to get right in on the action, and the British and French troops had never been taught to share nicely, and so there was all kinds of skirmishes between who would get what. And you know, you're right. I mean, it is true that many of these artifacts disappeared into uh, into the ether here in China, but there's also you know, as you said, there's a lot of them that are still. Um, out in the uh, in the rest of the world too, and, and today, of course, you know we have this narrative of the rejuvenation and the you know, Chinese dream, and it, it, it's it, it, this whole era, this century of humiliation becomes really important because you know, as I sometimes describe it to my students, it's a quasi-religious parable. You can't have the redemption without the fall. And this this fall, you know, describing this century of humiliation, this fall from grace, this fall from this glorious past, and then when China was laid low, you know, you need to just you need to describe, you need to kind of wallow in the depths of the tragedy, so that when China is redeemed, to uh, you know, follow the narrative as it's presented in schools and in the national museum, when it's redeemed by the Chinese Communist Party, and eventually will be further. Um, you know made whole by the rejuvenator in chief, um, you, you need to remember this era and I don't, also don 't want to make it sound like this is just a, you know, a callous political propaganda because there 's good reasons to remember this era, but it, it is worth noting that this you know, this idea of rescuing, rescuing China from humiliation is a, has become a, a major part of Chinese nationalism and the le, 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 legit, legitimizing narrative of the party.
1: You know, given all of that, and given that I think arguably you could say that the century of humiliation is really over now, and China, and it may be you know the U.S.'s turn right now perhaps. But what's the new, the new uh, historical usefulness of? Of this, of the ruins, of the symbolic uh, importance of them, are they going to be, uh, in, you know, continue to be stressed, to be put up as an example every year, or is this a, a time for a, a rethinking or a reevaluation of them or a reconceptualization of them?
0: Well, in addition to you know being a good plot device for this re- rejuvenation narrative, I think it also serves two other purposes. I think the first one. Is and this is also part of the patriotic education curriculum. It's worth reminding people that many of the same nations which continue to Hector China on issues of trade and human rights and a whole host of other uh, challenges are not so coincidentally the same countries that were involved in some of these actions in the century of humiliation: Britain, France, and then you know for other events too. You've got Germany and the United States, of course, and others. So I think that's another part of it. It, it, it gives a, a veneer, it, it makes it easier to point to these critiques uh, and, and claim hypocrisy. You know, Look at the foreign powers, they're trying to do now um, with their human rights agenda and their Nobel Prizes what they couldn't do with their gunboats and their armies. I think the second part of it too, and, and this again also goes back to the patriotic education curriculum. When I look at those textbooks from the 19th century, David, there isn't, it lacks nuance, but there's not too much there that's different from the way I would teach it. You know, again, imperialism sucks. But when you look at the textbooks for the 20th century, it's shocking what gets left out. And I think part of this, too, is you have to explain why China needs, if China had this glorious civilization, you have to explain why China needed to be redeemed and rejuvenated in the first place and it's a probably an easier sell to say, listen, we were doing fine, the foreign powers wiped us out, and then beginning with Mao, we kind of started the comeback, and here we are, brought to you by Huawei. And I think you know, that's an easier sell than the foreign powers wiped us out, and then you know we took over in the 1950s, and we did a significant amount of damage ourselves, and now everything's better, but we'd rather you not pay attention to the part that we contributed.
1: There's always going to be a pushback against the complex, nuanced truth, historical truth of why China had fallen, you know, to such such depths. And you're right. This will always be the, the, the easy one to enshrine in the history books.
0: I think complex history, nuanced history is something a lot of leaders around the world would prefer not to have to deal with. And in China, they just have, you know, they have the, the power and the mechanisms to excise nuance and complexity from the historical narrative uh, when they, when it's convenient for the the powers that be. Well, David, I, I think we've uh, exhausted the patience of our listeners uh, long enough for this particular episode. I really want to thank you for uh, joining uh, joining me from Shanghai.
1: Well, I mean, you know, ideally we should have done this podcast, you know, sitting atop the ruins of Yanmingyuan. That would have been really great. So, but now that uh, I'll be back in Beijing in the next few weeks, uh, you know, maybe there's a lot of uh, opportunity to do some creative podcasting once I'm there and we're in the same temporal spatial location.
0: Yeah, it'll be fun. All right, David. Well, thanks a lot. And for those of you out there, uh, continue. Thank you so much for your support. You can find us on iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you ever have any questions for us, you can get in touch with us. Both David and I are on Twitter and we'd love to hear from you. All right. Thank you. And we'll talk to you again.